0: Welcome to Truth Finder, where we seek crucial answers to critical questions about belief. Hello to everyone, welcome back. I am your host, Dr. Elijah Sadafal, and this is Truth Finder, the podcast. This is episode two, where we will search for a meaningful answer to the critical question, what are the consequences of ideas? The reality is that all ideas have consequences. In fact, ideas always precede a product, an endpoint that is either designed, desired, or unintended. This endpoint can be good or bad, and the reality is that brilliant ideas yield beneficial products, and thoughtless ideas portend disastrous consequences. Furthermore, in many cases, An idea will not yield a concrete product because the idea was not worth anything to begin with. As it pertains to our search for ultimate truth, we are concerned with those foundational or basic ideas that shape our reality and have tangible, everlasting, and positive consequences. Humans are born into a world that they did not create ex nihilo, that is, out of nothing. Instead, we step into a world, a society, and a culture that all Already exists, and we therefore learn to interact with the consequences of ideas that have already defined the contours of our reality. By turning our attention to the consequences of some foundational ideas and lay bare our assumptions, we will do two things. Number one, illuminate those timeless ideas that benefit us, and two, discover those underlying ideas that are in fact bogus with their associated poisonous consequences. Foundational thinking is concerned about the dissimilarity between truth and non-truth because it has a sincere interest in knowing what is good and what is evil. As Socrates once said, the unexamined life is not worth living. To any mature adult who takes life seriously, an unexamined, examined life simply is not an opportunity to be grasped. When it comes to the truth, embracing it means not only holding the complete truth close to your chest, but also considering and then accepting all the consequences of that truth. Indeed, if you accept an idea, then you accept its consequences. At the time I am broadcasting this podcast, we in America are in the midst of a presidential campaign. At one point, one candidate suggested that all high school graduates be entitled to a free college education. This is a great idea, but an idea that nonetheless has consequences. On the one hand, this would allow all those who are disenfranchised and who otherwise would not have access to a college education to get one for free. On the other hand, although the college would be free for the student, it would not be free for society. The consequence of free college requires a reasonable means to finance an education for many. Where would such funds come from in a government that is already in debt. On the other hand, a free college education means more young people would be better equipped to enter a competitive job market and therefore be able to generate more income and therefore stimulate the economy. On the other hand, who defines what college is? Is it two years or four? Would the universal availability of a college education drive down quality from the educational standards that exist now? Notice I did not take a stance on the idea. I am simply trying to relay the principle that if a person divorces the consequences of an idea from the idea itself, then what they are really doing is divorcing themselves from reality. One more time, if you accept an idea as true, then you must accept the consequences. If you don't accept the consequences, then you don't regard the idea as true. Henry Hazlitt was a thought leader in the realm of Austrian economics. He wrote about the central reality that while every group will share common economic interests, each individual group seeks interests that are antagonistic to the interests of others. Hence, as Hazlitt posited, there is a persistent tendency of individuals to perceive only the immediate effects of a given idea, particularly as it pertains to their own self-interest. They will often fail to consider what the long-term effects will be, not only in their group, but in society as a whole. So, Hazlitt writes about the apex of his thesis in Economics in One Lesson. He writes, The art of economics consists in looking not merely at the immediate, but at the longer effects of any act or policy. It consists in tracing the consequences of that policy, not merely for one group, but for all groups. What does this have to do with Truthfinder? Well, I will lean on Hazlitt to make the following assertion. Ultimate truth consists in looking not merely at the immediate, but at the longer effects of any idea. It consists in tracing the consequences of that idea, not merely for one group, but for all groups. Ideas do not exist in a vacuum. They are animated by reality and are given life by flesh and bones people. If you accept the idea, then you accept the consequences of that idea on the people who share reality with you. So when it comes to ultimate truth, I will make the proposition that the most important question that any human being will decide in their entire life pertains to if there is a God or not. Notice I did not qualify who that God is simply if God exists. Notice that I also did not place a value on the decision that a person makes. My point is that how you answer this vital question will have pervasive, relevant, and meaningful consequences regardless of how you choose. This existential wager was famously written about by the French mathematician and physicist Blaise Pascal hundreds of years ago. This wager involved betting on the reality of God. As Pascal wrote, let us then examine this point and let us say, either God is or he is not, but to which view shall we be inclined? Reason cannot dictate this question. Infinite chaos separates us. At the far end of this infinite distance, a coin is being spun which will come down heads or tails how will you wager? What is so interesting is that in his formulation, Pascal, a man of science and logic, did not reduce his reasoning to a series of empirical proofs or rational arguments. He managed to boil down a potent existential question to a matter of free will and responsibility. Certainly, the wager is not in any way an argument for the existence of God. It simply attempts to resolve an existential dilemma in the form of a question. In short, in the game of of reality, how will you bet your life? Pascal goes on to argue that everyone must wager and decide where to invest their energies and hope. Each choice entails significant consequences and the question has its most relevance to people who are undecided. Everyone else has already chosen. Ultimately, a choice has to be made and not placing a bet or walking away from the table in essence is the same as betting that God does not exist. The central point that Pascal Pascal was trying to make is that you must choose. Indeed, he was not so naive to think that God simply exists because of the desires of a person's heart. Pascal continues to write that if you wager that God does exist, you have much to gain and nothing to lose. He says that if you wager that God does not exist, you will have lost everything and gained nothing. This is where I must humbly disagree with Pascal. If a person bets that God does not exist, they are actually free to do what is right in their own eyes and pursue a life that secures what suits their own interests. Here, they gain the present and the world that they desire and lose eternity. But if there is not anything in eternity, then this ends up being of no consequence. Here, the moment-to-moment opportunities for self-gratification can always be taken. On the other hand, if a person bets that God does exist, they will in fact lose many things in the present with the hope of gaining eternity. In the Christian faith, for example, this would mean denying oneself when it comes to the day-to-day opportunities for self-gratification. So although not explicit, a subliminal premise that supports Pascal's wager is that eternity matters more than the present. So when it comes to the consequences of ideas, we have to take a look at the consequences of Nietzsche's ideas. Frederick Nietzsche is the father of atheistic existentialism. Hence, Nietzsche embraced the truth claim that God is dead, and from that core idea resulted many consequences. We shall explore some of them here. Nietzsche wrote that God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all, that the world has yet owned, has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? what festivals of atonement, what sacred game shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods, simply to appear worthy of it. Nietzsche lived in a time, the 1800s, that he described as being in radical decay. He identified the cause of that decay as one claim to ultimate truth, the Christian faith. He posited that certain Christian values, such as grace and mercy, actually instilled weakness in people and undermined authentic human existence. So, in order to unshackle ourselves from the burdens of Christianity, we had to wake up from the false reality of Christian dogma. It is then Nietzsche posited that we are liberated to an authentic life that is free from external characterizations of meaning or any forms of absolute truth. The synopsis of this idea that we should reject established laws and traditions and that there is no objective truth was called nihilism. Hence, because God is dead, life has no meaning and what you are left with is the nothingness of human existence that lacks transcendent meaning or purpose. Nietzsche thought that religion declared as sinful those things that were natural to humankind. According to Frederick Nietzsche, the most fundamental force in life is not self-preservation but the will to power. In fact, Nietzsche considered Darwin's theory of evolution to be too soft and passive. So while While Darwin would assert that natural selection slowly and gently persuaded biological evolution, Nietzsche would assert that life is very active and means much more than survival. It means the purposeful intent to overpower and conquer. This biological heroism was a new kind of authentic existence characterized by the Superman, and that's translated as Übermensch in German. This Superman is evolved. The Übermensch is not afraid to exercise his will to power to the ultimate level. Ironically, given his subscription to nihilism, Nietzsche was pressed to contemplate if the courage of the Übermensch was meaningless. He asserted that indeed it was meaningless, but in encouraged others to be courageous anyway. According to Nietzsche, herd morality means people are stupid and slave as sheep, who follow what is. Herd morality is a subliminal search for security and finds its most acceptance amongst the weak in any society. The strong or those who embrace the master morality reject a morality of utility and seek out to conquer. Here, one creates his own morality and virtues and is the master of his own fate. God is merely an obstacle to be scaled in the pursuit of self-interest. Yet even though all of this is admittedly nonsense, sensical, the chief virtue still remains courage. Nietzsche would proudly proclaim that all should act with courage, even though the courage itself and the results of said courage are totally meaningless. The Ubermensch is unafraid to say never mind to eternity and feels empowered to face a cold and dark universe with the bravado of an undefeated champion. The Ubermensch says to his less than adequate neighbors, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, I will make myself greater than all of you." Indeed, all ideas have consequences. The last 11 years of Nietzsche's life was spent in asylum. Yes, Nietzsche went insane, which in the context of nihilism is meaningless. In fact, during this time, Nietzsche spoke of horses as his siblings, and his sister sold tickets to observers who wanted to bear witness to her famous brother's madness. This was a fitting example of the Ubermensch exercising a will to power. Near the end of his life, Nietzsche signed his letters, The Crucified One, an illusion that in his madness, Nietzsche thought himself to be Jesus Christ. The central paradox of Nietzsche's philosophy remains its absurdity. After all, even he admitted the meaninglessness of his postulations, which makes everything that he said meaningless. By extension, the meaninglessness of life when God is dead also persuaded Darwin to contemplate the presupposed absurdity in his theory of evolution. In the 19th century, Darwin wrote, With me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. In other words, Darwin's horrid doubt arose from the realization that if man and animals both evolved from the same stuff without transcendent meaning, then he was persuaded to question the validity of mankind's own thoughts. Of course then, this questioning applied to Darwin's own theory of biological evolution. Now we'll talk about the consequences of imprudent ideas. We live in a world full of opinions, and especially with the advent of the internet, anyone can put forth any idea that they would like into the public form of discourse. However, when contemplating the trustworthiness or the value of ideas, one also has to consider the source, that is, the competence of the individual proclaiming the idea. Truly, competence is king, yet what often tends to happen in modernity is that many mistake opportunity and access for capability. A competent person proven to be reliable who stands on a strong foundation of truth is a valued sage in whom you can trust and can obtain meaningful answers. This is a very beneficial consequence. A less than competent person can certainly be a source of ideas, but you would immediately have to question the trustworthiness and the subsequent consequences of said ideas. These consequences are problematic at best. Take for example the world of medicine. As a physician, every time I am in the office, I am guaranteed to interact with a patient who looked up their symptoms on the internet and then presents with their own diagnosis. Here the patient's idea of what their diagnosis is comes from an unqualified source that lacks credentials, experience, or the benefit of a personal encounter in which a real-life doctor can hear, see, feel, and touch. And what are the consequences for a patient that relies on such a disreputable source. The fallacious impression that they are suffering from something much, much worse than what they really have or a total misdiagnosis. In some extreme cases, a patient full of angst can be manipulated into taking drastic measures in order to alleviate their presupposed sickness. Ultimately, after the correct diagnosis is made, Think of basic throat infection. The patient's anxiety is alleviated by the reassurance that they will be fine and the promise of an appropriate plan of treatment, something that frequently is very simple and painless. In this real life example, an innocent patient placed a wager on an imprudent idea from a questionable source. Here, the stakes were quite low, but imagine how high the stakes become when a person makes a wager and gambles with eternity based on an irreputable idea from an incompetent source. Indeed, it is worth repeating. When it comes to evaluating ideas for their trustworthiness, consider the source because competence is king. Now we'll look at the consequences of understanding content versus criticism. Content, of course, are ideas and criticism is anti-ideas. Great ideas have really good content. For example, I mentioned this maxim before, an unexamined life is not worth living. This contains actionable advice that persuades every everyone to pursue an earnest path of introspection and self-evaluation. It's very important to note that great ideas lack criticism. Why? Because criticism is a tool used to refine ideas but is not an end in and of itself. In this way, criticism is investigatory and directs a person toward enduring content. This in no way suggests that one should refrain from criticism because using it as a tool can mold an amorphous blob of loose thoughts into a well-refined and breathtaking idea able to entertain endure and be appreciated. My point is that a sculptor who uses a hammer and chisel of criticism works best when his goal is a refined idea. A sculptor who uses his tools for the sake of using his tools simply destroys. Criticism is not content. Only content is content. Criticism by itself has no value because it is dependent and derivative. Criticism only has value as a point to alternative content, which is never exempt from the same degree of scrutiny that got a person there in the first place. Next, we'll take a look at the anatomy of atheism. How a person defines the construct of atheism has potent consequences for how they will execute rational thinking and engage with others who do not share similar ideas. Without first dissecting the idea of unbelief, it is impossible to recognize the unique consequences this ideology has on patterns of thought. Dictionary.com defines atheism as the doctrine or belief that there is no God. A somewhat dissimilar definition can be found in the New Oxford American Dictionary that defines atheism as disbelief or the lack of belief in the existence of God or gods. In Atheism, The Case Against God, George H. Smith defines atheism as, the absence of theistic belief. He goes on to write that atheism in its basic form is not a belief. It is the absence of belief. An atheist is not primarily a person who believes that a God does not exist. Rather, he does not believe in the existence of a God. The first definition was honest. The second and third definitions are intellectually dishonest. Allow me to explain. The latter definitions yield a construct that is totally devoid of content and is essentially meaningless. That is, by simply defining what a person lacks belief in, you actually remain totally silent about what they do believe in. And using this logic then, I am an A-Muslim and an A-Racist, meaning that I lack belief in the God of Islam and I lack belief in racial superiority. In practice, a person could believe that we are living in the matrix or that the origin of life can be explained by green aliens and still fall within the contours of thinking outlined by these definitions. Why? Because of the absence of belief in the existence of God. In fact, without intending to be too cheeky, the following entities all lack belief in God and therefore qualify as atheists using Smith's definition. Newborn babies, monkeys, staplers, and rocks. Furthermore, this classification would, in fact, enable a person to execute blind faith and believe in fantasy as long as there still is no belief in God's existence. This is a way of thinking and an outcome that atheism ironically strives against. But guess what? Human beings are not robots and everyone believes in something. By necessity, if a person does not believe in something, they will believe in something else. So indeed, if God does not exist and God did not create advanced life, then by implication, Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection will explain life, or another theory, I presume, that I am yet unaware of. The point is that a lack of belief in God does not nullify belief in general, and if for nothing else, atheism will direct a person's belief toward other truth claims, whether it be, for example, secularism, humanism, reason, science, or logic. In this paradigm, we can again see the power of criticism not as an end in and of itself, but as a tool to direct a person toward other meaningful content. Consequently, for the purpose of this series, under the banner of belief, I will regard atheism as the belief that God does not exist. Certainly, one reason why the definition of the absence of belief has been adopted is quite simple, because it tries to absolve its subscribers from the burden of proof. The burden falls on the shoulders of anyone who makes a claim and therein mandates evidence, mature arguments, and reasonable thinking. Hence, the declaration God does not exist is in fact a truth claim that requires proof. Markedly, it is quite understandable why many run away from this confident assertion that God does not exist, because it is a claim that turns out to be unprovable. The claim, I lack belief in the existence of God, is a personal feeling of scarcity and moves out of the realm of reason into subjective emotions. Theists are often derided for inventing unfalsifiable truth claims and then daring people to disprove something that cannot be disproven. This is intellectually dishonest. In the case of the absence of belief, it is equally dishonest to demand an intellectual response to a subjective feeling or to divorce oneself from the acute reality that whether a person assigns positive or negative value to a truth claim, this never exempts them from the objective need to qualify why they have adopted a position. Of course, a person could simply reject this assertion as long as one acknowledges that a mature adult argument will be abandoned for something much less sophisticated. The notion that disbelief is not an intellectual conviction requires some more elaborate Liberation. This notion merely describes a psychological state. If my in her 60s mother told me that she was pregnant again, I would be in a state of disbelief. If my wife, who does not have an appendix, told me that she had acute appendicitis, I would be in a state of disbelief. These temporary states are transitionary and serve as vehicles to either positive or negative beliefs based on evidence. Disbelief also makes experience quite unpleasant, when the model is applied to the rest of life. I could, for example, have a lack of belief that climate change exists or that the Holocaust really happened. It would be irrational to sit back and simply say, prove it to me while I took no initiative of my own to take the reins of life and be responsible for my own thinking. Ultimately, this flawed strategy equates to intellectual welfare. However, disbelief that acts as a catalyst for further investigation is always beneficial and allows for vetted belief To triumph, atheism can only exist secondary to theism. It is derivative and feeds off the content of another ideology. Even the word atheism, from the Greek "atheos," meaning without theism or without God, can't escape its dependency on God. I will quote George Smith one final time: Atheism is important because theism is important. In a similar way, viruses are important because being healthy is important. Cancer. is important because life is important. Next, we'll take a look at the anatomy of theism. How a person approaches theism has potent consequences for how they execute rational thinking and engage with others who do not share similar ideas. Without first dissecting the idea of belief, it is impossible to recognize the unique consequences of this ideology on patterns of thought. The New Oxford American Dictionary defines theism as belief in the existence of a god or gods, especially belief in one God as creator of the universe, intervening in it and sustaining a personal relationship to his creatures. So herein lies the problem. Which God are we talking about? Is it Jesus? What about the God of Islam? What about the gods of Greek mythology? It is beyond the scope of Truthfinder to make an attempt to sift through all theistic truth claims. What I will say, though, is that as I mentioned in the last episode, the truth must be exclusive or else it cannot be truth. So as it pertains to theism, logic, speaking, all truth claims cannot all be true. Either one can be true or all can be false, but all cannot be true. There's a romantic notion in the 21st century that all religions essentially say the same thing so that it will all work out in the end. The brutal reality is that everyone cannot hold hands as we all walk into the sunset because religious truth claims are logically incompatible. Yes, some practices and customs may be very similar, but core ideology is mutually exclusive. Judaism, for example, says good ethical behavior earns you salvation. Christianity says people are saved by God's grace. Buddhism and Mormonism are models where humans strive to reach up to nirvana and heaven, respectively. Christianity says that God strives and reaches down to humans. When it comes to different religious truth claims, God, evil, humanity, ethics, history, morality, and salvation are all viewed differently. So as it pertains to investigating the claims of religions, we use logic to make sense of how facts interrelate and the empirical method to determine what is in fact true. Yet just because a claim is logical does not make it true for example, something can have logical internal consistency, such as one unicorn plus one unicorn equals two unicorns, but still be a logically consistent fairy tale. In fact, this formula still remains valid, whether or not unicorns exist. Thus, when investigating theistic claims, the facts unearthed by empiricism through, for example, scientific and historical means, are the final determinants of truth, regardless of competing interpretations. So how does one begin to evaluate which of the religious truth claims are true? Well, the first question to ask is if there is a factual claim to begin with. This claim is something that has to be able to be verified or falsified. Furthermore, excluding the realm of math, deductive logic, or death, it is clear that absolute certainty is never obtainable. The fact of the matter is that life is never 100% certain, yet people continue to go about their lives without this full assurance. When I prescribe patients antibiotics, for example, I am never 100% certain that they will work, yet I prescribe anyway with reasonable certainty. People get married without being 100% certain that it will work out. People buy insurance because they are not certain that they will not be the victims of theft. People can't even be 100% certain that the sun will rise in the morning, but they go to bed without the felt anxiety over a dark tomorrow. When we process these guidelines, what we're left with is a startling reality that yes, almost all religious truth claims are total and complete nonsensical hocus-pocus that do indeed rely on blind faith, irrational thinking, and faulty logic. Accordingly, as Craig A. Parton writes in Religion on Trial, 99.9% of all religious claims are not factual in nature and cannot be verified or falsified, even in principle. These odds are not daunting because even if 0.1% of religious claims are true, then that truth will stand regardless of how big an ocean of non-truth surrounds it. So using Parton's framework, it becomes clear, for example, that the claims, I believe that God is everywhere and is everything, and the claim that I lack belief in the existence of God, both are meaningless statements in that both cannot be either verified or falsified. As an aside, what I would say is that at the very least, the theistic truth claim actually attempts to make a positive truth claim, which would give its subscriber a unique benefit of holding onto this ideology. In other words, the idea of a unique theistic truth claim has unique consequences in real life. So, when I recently asked someone what is the unique benefit of atheism, they said it empowers them to take life by the horns and live life as they see fit. Is then that I thought to myself, true, you don't necessarily need theism to take life by the horns and be quote unquote happy, but you also don't need atheism to do that either. Radicalism. The danger, of course, of upholding an idea that cannot be verified and thus dwell in the realm of fantasy, as ultimately true, is that when taken to a fanatical extreme, this idea yields consequences, which can have disastrous effects on humanity. And those deleterious effects are in turn justified by fantasy, which makes difficult tempering one's actions with reason and sensibility. Accordingly, it is the radicalness of an idea that poses a threat to humanity, not the idea itself. Taken in that light, if you violate non-aggression and assault those who do not share your view, either with violence or with non- violent coercion, all of these strategies share the same underlying fanatical principle, that the world would be better off without people who don't believe what I believe. Ideologically speaking, then, there is no difference between a zealot who wants to convert the world by terror and an intellectual who wants to rid the world of superstitious ideas. So where do we go from here? We will use what we have learned so far and engage our senses and reason in pursuit of meaningful answers. What I hope I have provided thus far is a critical yet reasonable framework to begin the approach to asking critical questions about life, existence, and the world around us. In future episodes, I will ask critical questions such as what's the point of evil, what secret is DNA hiding, and where does morality come from? But I hope you will join me for Truthfinder episode 3. Do out in a few weeks everyone take care and see you next time please join me for truth finders next episode where we will search for a crucial answer to the critical question why is there something rather than nothing